and welcome to Season 3 of Interdisciplinary Heal Well's Healthcare Podcast. We have a great season sh- shaping up for you, featuring several guests who will also be presenters at our Social Justice in Healthcare Conference in October. So that conference is called Just Care, Social Justice in Healthcare, and will be October 9th and 10th of 2021. This is an all-online conference, and we have some great speakers lined up, and you'll get to hear from some of them during this season of Interdisciplinary. For this first episode, uh, we hope you enjoy this rebroadcast of an episode we recorded in October of 2020 with Ann Blair Kennedy and Kemi Balagun. As you know, we like to start every show with a pun, and uh, we're we're getting we're getting off the we're we're not going to be hemmed in by themes for our puns. I've decided. <laughs> so, uh, so today's pun. I actually just finished uh, on Saturday. I finished my six day course that I teach called "Opening to the Mystery," which is all about mortality and death and dying and stuff. So, um, so I wonder if you guys know um, what a liar does after he dies. He lies still. Lovely. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. So, oh. <laughs> Kathy, how do I respond politely? That's the worst joke I've ever heard. Uh, so, without further ado, uh, let's. Talk yeah, yes, about- yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> let's please talk about something else. Yeah. Uh, so, um, ABK, uh, Ann Blair Kennedy, you've been with us before, so you know that we sort of let you introduce yourself. Uh, so we'll let you do that. And then, uh, Kemi, I should have asked you, uh, your last name is Balogun. Yes, that right? that's correct. Okay. Yep. Uh, so we'll let our guests introduce themselves, but, uh, we're here to talk about stuff that we know is important to you guys. And, uh, as we promise, hopefully make some suggestions about how to help us all move forward. So we'll let you guys arm wrestle to decide who introduces themselves first. It's up to my student. I will let her decide who she, if she wants me to go first, I will. Or she can. Dr. Kennedy, you can go ahead. <laughs> Dr. Kennedy, boom. <laughs> All right, so I am Ann Blair Kennedy. I am an assistant professor at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine, Greenville. Nice long name. Um, I've also been a massage therapist for 21 years and here in South Carolina and had a practice, was had a great successful practice. And then just before I turned 40, I went back and got my um, doctorate of public health. So I don't have a PhD, I have a DRPH. Yeah, it's leadership in public health. You know, nothing that's important right now at all. Um, <laughs> but I've also been really active in our massage profession, um, especially with AMTA and the Massage Therapy Foundation. At the AMTA right now, um, I was president of the South Carolina chapter, all that stuff. Now I am the chair of governance for that association. Um, for the Massage Therapy Foundation, I've been on the board of trustees, a lot of different committees here and there, but I'm also the um, editor-in-chief and executive editor of the International Journal of Therapeutic Massage and Bodywork, which is our peer-reviewed, um, open access, free to publish in journal that is supported by the foundation. And um, there we have it. Get Lots your paywalls out of here. No paywalls. No paywalls. paywalls are gone. Boom. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you. 
Um, and I'm Kemi Balligan. I'm a fourth year medical student at USC Greenville. I graduated from Wake Forest University in 2016 with a degree in biology and psychology. Um, I have an interest in women's health as well as mental health. Um, and I'm glad to be here with you all tonight. Thanks for being here. Um, before we get into the meat of your paper, you sort of like, you sort of bury the lead for me in the paper. So you, you sort of like, there's this tiny little paragraph about how you guys started talking about race and equity and diversity. And you're like, and so now here we go. And I wonder if you remember that conversation and sort of how, tell us the things. How we got started. This was actually one of the, the best things for me. And I actually said this, Kimmy, I said this in a whole meeting on Friday. This is one of the best things that came out of the pandemic for me was this relationship with her. Oh, wow. <laughs> I That's did. So I said that in a meeting at the school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yay. So because of the pandemic, I ended up, I was asked to teach this elective that I um, teach for the school. It's on gender and sexuality in the clinical environment. And they asked me to switch it to an online version, um, which I did pretty quickly. And Kenny was in my class. Yeah, so that was an elective that I thought would be very useful for my future career, and I was really nervous about it, but um, I ended up loving it. I thought that Dr. Kennedy conducted it in such a way that myself and my classmates were very comfortable in speaking about taboo subjects. Um, so then I reached out to her after the course ended and I just kind of sent her a bit of a love letter saying, hey, <laughs> I really enjoyed the course and I would love to learn more about your research and how I could get involved. Um, and that's where the relationship started. Awesome. And so, and then you guys started talking about race. We did because okay. um, very like right in that phone call, I mean, in that WebEx call, we did right then because she was asking about the research. That's right when Project Cope got started, which we talked about a while ago, which is yeah. still going on. Awesome. And I said to her very explicitly, now, mind you, we got really comfortable talking about some interesting things <laughs> in the two weeks All sorts that of led things. up to it. Yeah. All, everything. <laughs> it's just. You you never know what parents or patients are going to bring into the, the, the room. So you got to be able to do it without squicking. But um, so we talk about a lot of stuff. So we were already kind of comfortable. Yeah. And I just looked at her and I said, I want you to realize that this entire research team is white. We know we're white and we recognize we are all white and we need help. Yeah. And we want you to be comfortable coming into that environment, knowing not that you're the diversity person coming in, mm but saying we need your perspective yeah and yeah because that, 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 that's the team I work with that's yeah. just well and I would and I would guess from what I know of you and Blair that that when you say we're white like that you and your team have likely sort of discussed whiteness and like not we all have white skin but like we are white in all of the ways a person can be white and we're trying to get our minds around why that matters and how to sort of bring true equity and diversity into mm -hmm. the environment and yeah so i just for our listeners i mean if that was wrong i'd certainly want you to be like no nope, we didn't talk about that at all but i think that we when we think about being white we really most of us think oh of course i have white skin it's like no 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 whiteness goes way deeper than that and mm -hmm. so okay so that how did that feel 
Kemi to to be like, hey, <laughs> come on in. <laughs> I I found that to be very refreshing. Actually, yeah. I thought that that like honesty and very direct and straightforward way of saying, hey, this is where we are, and this is where we would like to be. I thought it was great. I felt comfortable stepping into that. Um, and like Dr. Kennedy mentioned, it wasn't just about including one black person on the team. It's more about um, making sure that we have different perspectives represented. Um, and then having someone like me who can then tap into my own networks to then bring those voices to the forefront. Um, so I was excited to be a part of the team. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. All right. So then, so you are not a massage therapist, but you are a massage recipient. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, so talk about how did you decide that, you know, equity and diversity and inclusion in massage was a thing that, I mean, obviously you, you might have been swayed by a, someone with a 21 year career in massage, therapy, but <laughs> how did that happen? So um, again, back to that conversation, that Zoom meeting that we had set up, um, we got to talking about everything and I um, we were, of course, talking about the pandemic. And at that time, it, things had just picked up. Um, and I was talking about how, oh, you know, I wonder when next I'm going to be able to get a massage. And I was a little sheepish about sharing that because um, at the time I was like, you know, massage is this thing that is seen as a luxury and I'm a student with no income. And, you know, I'm a little shy about sharing that. And she said, well, let, I want to challenge that. And that's how that conversation came about. Nice. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just to challenge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just to, just for, for a minute, well, you sort of stepped out of character and we're kind of like, Hey, yeah. <laughs> well, it was the whole discussion of this is something you are doing not just for your physical self, but for your mental health and well-being. Yeah. And this is part of your wellness routine. And yeah. if you honor it that way and step back from that luxury piece, which so many people fall into, Definitely. then honoring it as part of that wellness and, and, and health to keep you healthy. I mean, good Lord, medical school. I haven't been through medical school, but from what I have seen, it's just yes. a bit stressful. <laughs> yeah, just a tad. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So the I mean, so the paper is called Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion in the Massage Therapy Profession, uh, which is was very exciting to me to even see that that was out there. And then of course I looked at it and I was like, oh well, of course, that's who's involved with this craziness. Um, and I um, so what's the most useful way, you guys, for us to talk about this? Do you want to like tell us your favorite parts of it? Do you want to um, you know, we know that not everybody, some people just see even the format and they go, I'm not going to read this whole thing. Um, so what, what would like your Cliff's notes be? So I, I mean, I can start it off. Um, so yeah. in, in the brainstorming process, um, I kind of thought back to um, how important representation has been um, for me in medicine. And I said, well, maybe this could be carried over into massage therapy. So my initial thought was, well, maybe there aren't many black massage therapists because maybe there aren't many black people receiving massage in the first place. There aren't enough personal experiences with the field. So 
there may not be this awareness of like, this is a career opportunity for me. This is something that I could pursue as a legitimate career. Um, so that that's where I would like to start this, this discussion. And I think there are, I, in the paper, we broke it down into three main pieces. Yeah. Um, one being um, economics. So kind of like how I mentioned earlier, in the Black community, and I, not just the Black community, but probably more so the Black community, massage is seen as a luxury, um, seen as something that it's only meant for the rich white woman. Um, and therefore, we're not going to um, allocate funds to something that may be seen as indulgent. So is there a way we could make massage therapy um, more affordable? So that's number one. Number two, it, there also may be this lack of knowledge around the health benefits of massage therapy. So um, one idea I had was, well, I wonder if primary care providers could talk to patients about massage therapy and offer that as a legitimate modality as a part of their you know, care. Are people even aware that this does have actual health benefits. Um, So that's another piece, education. And then um, the last piece is access. So let's say I do have the funds and I am aware of the health benefits. Where can I go to get a massage? Um, Are there franchises? And I know franchises are not the only means of getting a massage, but are there franchises in lower income communities? Yeah. So those are just like cliff notes of some of the key pieces that we discussed in the, in the editorial. Yeah. Would you talk a little bit about, you were talking about representation in, in medicine. And I know mm-hmm. that, um, it, I mean, we don't have really great data. I mean, you guys reference, and we'll talk later about the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics and kind of what they've measured in terms of representation, which I, you know, I don't know how, how well that's measured, but um, when we look at, you know, blacks are way less represented as physicians. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really curious about your talk, if you would talk about your, how I think you said like representation sort of is part of how you were like, oh wait, this is the direction I want to go in. Yeah. So um, as of 2018, um, about 5% of physicians, um, there are about 5% of physicians who are black um, practicing in the United States. Um, And the reason why we want to increase representation of Black physicians in the workforce is that studies have shown that when patients see physicians who are similar to themselves, they're more likely to seek out preventative care. They spend longer time with their doctors. They report higher satisfaction um, of the care that they received. So it just leads to better outcomes, and that is supported by research. So that's why it's important to have an increase in representation of minority groups in healthcare. Um, and then a personal piece of it um, is when you see yourself represented in a group, um, you're more likely to think, you know what, that is achievable. I can actually accomplish that. And unfortunately, so many of us, um, I'm thinking about a classmate who told me that the first time she met a Black physician was actually in medical school. And how sad (laughs) is that? Um, But she just, you know, shared with me that she wished that 
she had met someone sooner because that grew to be a meaningful relationship for her. So that's why representation is important. Yeah. Kathy. And if you, you know, even when you Google these images, right? If you go and Google massage yes, and you look at images, it's white women. Yeah. Right. Getting in the feeding, <laughs> with yep. flowers in their hair. Yeah. And stones on their body. Yeah. So it looks yeah. luxurious. Right. Well, I'm thinking about, you know, we are on hiatus, unfortunately, on a study that we're doing right now, but working with left ventricular assistive device patients in, uh, in a uh, urban hospital setting. And all of the patients we've seen in the study so far have been black. And I think one of the patients I worked with had previous experience with massage. But when I walk in, the jokes about spa and like, you know, it's my, it's my pedicure day, whatever, like just start rolling. And like, this is, they're like, Ooh, you know, look at me. I get to, you know, be pampered. And, mm -hmm. and I'm so glad that that is what I am actually there to do is to help them. I mean, the study is to show if I'm nice to you for a half hour, every time you come in for a checkup, does that help you cope with your chronic illness? Mm -hmm. um, but you can see how it's also sort of masking discomfort with like, I don't deserve this. I couldn't afford this on the outside. This is not like, how is this part of medical care? And you can really see how we are, we will be measuring also, did people have access to massage before? Were they using massage? But that the story is that this is their first exposure and mm -hmm. it, it's not something that necessarily will inspire them to seek massage later. Um, it, I think it is benefiting them during their treatment, but there's definitely still a disconnect. Yeah, and we have a black, black massage therapist on our team. So um, there's also that, I wonder how that fits with, if I am a black patient receiving massage from a white person, how does that also sort of support mm. the like, I don't, where would I go to get this? You know, maybe some of those questions don't get asked because you go, oh, right, this is whiteness coming to me. And when I'm not in this medical environment, maybe that's not something I can, I can do. So a question on your study. Yes, please. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, you do yes. have some patient engagement type work going with it too. Yes, we do. We Super do. Cool. Yes. Which was, I'm so excited about because that's my other <laughs> line of work. Yes. <laughs> um, but I guess my question for you would be is at the end of your study, are you giving them a link to resources to massage therapists who are in the community? We are. Who also might look like them, right? So are yeah. you bringing in massage therapist who can help them afterwards. Yes, and I and I am embarrassed to say that George Floyd had to be murdered for us to go, huh, we're in Washington, DC. This is a place where there are black massage therapists. And I mean, we've sort of, the people who work with Healwell have just come through our courses, which then of course leads us further down the road to why aren't black massage therapists taking end of life hospital-based medical minded massage therapy courses and where is that disconnect and uh -huh. yeah i mean and i don't i don't have an answer certainly representation is probably a big piece of it the economics of it are another big piece um and how do we how do we untangle you know when i think about making massage affordable that is an important piece of this and also it's sort of i feel this sense of like because we're just going to accept that black people won't have the money so we better just make this affordable, right? Like, can't we fix also, and I mean, we can't as a profession, but it's not enough to just lower the price sort of, 
we have to look at access in, in more creative ways and really look at how do we lift all the boats. And but, but also not all black people are low income well, either. Right. right, exactly. Yeah, so access isn't all about, yeah, that, that piece of it. Um, so yeah, so many questions. Kimmy, it looked like you had a thought there for a second when yeah. I jumped in and interrupted. <laughs> no, I think um, in speaking about the education piece, um, I don't know much about how much it costs to go to to get um, training in massage therapy, but I wonder if that could also be a barrier. Because um, I know in thinking about medical education, the cost of even applying to medical school is astronomical and just is a significant barrier for um, Black students even pursuing the field. So I wonder if a similar um, dynamic is, is present in massage therapy. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's cheap to apply. In fact, I think it's usually, you know, 50 bucks, 100 bucks. Oh, is um, it really? Okay. Yeah. But, but I do think, I mean, I think the cost of um, massage, and I, I'll look forward to the hate mail about this, but I feel like massage um, attracts people who want sort of a quasi career in a lot of ways. Like I think that it, it is an, an entry point for people who want to help and be sort of healthcare-ish, but it doesn't cost the same as PT school or like medical assistant training or, you know, so you can get your hands on people and feel like you're doing something meaningful for not so much money. And I mean, I think there's a pretty wide range in terms of what it might cost because, mm -hmm. the, you know, every state has different requirements and schools run very differently. And so, and some schools have, you know, the opportunity for you to do um, student loans and various sorts of like payment plans and things. But I think that massage therapy, it attracts people who want to do a different kind of study. And I think that here, I know that there has been, the average age of massage students has dropped in the last handful of years. And so you have people coming right out of high school, going into massage school and not really being invited to sort of develop the chops to then be successful when they leave massage school. And I wonder how many people, I mean, across the spectrum, but certainly if you're sort of pulling up your bootstraps and saying, I'm gonna try massage therapy, and then you go through a training program that doesn't sort of really help you be successful after, I wonder how many black massage students are graduating from massage school and six months later, they go do some other job because they went out there and they couldn't start their own practice or you know they didn't get the kind of support that mm. they needed and they didn't have the kind of safety net to be able to ride it out until they could get that established. Well, and I wonder too, and, and Kemi, perhaps you can speak to this, you have a background in psychology as well. Cult culturally, um, perceptions around touch mm. and how, how does that tie in in terms of various populations, people of color, you know, versus, you know, people who are not. Um, is that potentially one of those barriers or one of those issues to be looked at with regard to both individuals seeking out massage mm -hmm. therapy as well as people who might take an interest in massage therapy as a profession? That's a really interesting question. Um, 
I certainly cannot speak for all black people, but (laughs) but my mom comes to mind. So (laughs) I love massage, big fan. My mom, on the other hand, is very um, hesitant because of the touching aspect. So born and raised in Nigeria, moved to the United States as an adult, um, the idea of undressing in front of a stranger and then having that stranger have access to, you know, the body, that seems to make her uncomfortable. Um, so I know that to be true for my mother. And I, and I don't know if, if it's true for other uh, members of the Black community, but that's, a, that's an interesting thought for sure. Yeah. No. I know there was a study done on proximity and amount of touching that different cultures do, right? But I do not remember if they talked about any African-American or American, Black Americans in any way in that study. So I know they looked at Americans, they looked at British people, and they looked at Latin Americans. I believe is how the study went. And when you look at the number of times, like if you were wa- sitting at a cafe, they would watch couples would, and they would come in and sit and watch to see how close they sat to each other and how much they touched each other. Huh. And I think, in, if I remember, this is a long time ago that I remember reading this thing. So I can't tell you who wrote it or anything. I'm like nothing. I'm just remembering barely some things. So in um, Latin American, uh, individuals touch the most. So they would get very close to each other and they would there would be a lot of touching. Americans were actually kind of in the middle and in the British, they were like further apart and they didn't touch each other hardly at all, if I'm remembering how things were going. So it was just kind of interesting, but I do not remember if they discussed race and ethnicity within that at all. Mm-hmm. And then what is that structural, you know, and we, and we really need to think about, we cannot talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in any profession without talking about the structural racism that leads up to those conversations and why that might be. Yes, we talk about equity, about access and education and all of these other pieces, but we have to look at the underlying structures that lead to these conversations. Why do we have to have these? Because there's structural racism within our society. Yeah, yeah. That puts whiteness more important than anything else. And if we don't, everything we do is a Band-Aid. Yes. So we can't have those conversations without having those discussions about why it came that way. Yeah. And I mean, and it still goes into that piece of, I just always go to the images. The Google images, the thing just, it just, it floors me. I mean, that's just one place where I will go, like I do this when we talk about leadership too. It's gotten a little better. However, you used to go search the word leadership or leader, and all you would get would be men. White dudes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Like Googling skinny massage therapist. Too. Yes. Mm-hmm. Did you say skinny too? Yeah. There, yeah. There's very little body diversity. Yeah. Yeah. And so that just should show you the things that are influencing us along the ways. So as she's, as Kimmy mentioned, if black teenagers 
mm-hmm. don't know that this is a profession. Right. And they're also not given the keys to success to succeed in the profession, as you've, you've mentioned. Yeah. And maybe they're not getting hired right. at the franchises. Right. Because of structural racism. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. You wouldn't fit with our clientele. Yeah. Yeah. Or you get hired and people just don't, don't see you. And so it just doesn't work out. Right. Yeah. Whatever those things might be. Yeah. So we have to look at all of those pieces in this profession to make sure that not only do we have diversity, but we have inclusion. Exactly. So we have to bring in those pieces and make all the individuals comfortable to be a part of this profession. Definitely. Because we don't necessarily do that well. No. Well, and we're great at tokenism as well. And I think that we think of inclusion, we think of tokenism as inclusion. That like, look, we have a black person, we have a a Latinx person. And if that person's voice is not included, you have not achieved any degree of inclusion, but their their mere presence doesn't change the conversation. Yeah, so um, I love what you just said. And I saw a quote that, that tokenism is is diversity without the inclusion. I don't know who said that, but I that really uh, that really spoke to me because I think it really gets at the essence of like where we sort of falter. It's not enough just to invite minority groups to the conversation, um, or you know increase the number of Black students that you accept into a medical school, but you then have to say okay is this environment set up in such a way that all students can succeed? Yeah. Um, so one, one example for medical education is, you know, are there mentors who look like these students that we've recruited? Do they feel safe? Do they have safe spaces on campus? Yeah. All of these things will contribute to um, whether or not they thrive, you know, whether or not they come out of this and are able to truly contribute to medicine, right? So it's not enough just to say, okay, you're here, but like, how can we see you through it? How can we support you through it? Yeah. That's true inclusion. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that that speaks back to what you were saying, Dr. Kennedy, uh, that, um, that, uh, <sighs> We have to we have to understand our role in structural racism and, and and that you know I'm thinking about when I've when I've listened in on the conversations about sort of exactly what Cami just talked about like what do we need to adjust about our curriculum about our school environment to support students coming from black communities and and that there's this there's this whiteness of like well, what, because they can't do the coursework, I have to blah, blah, blah. And it's like, so let's go back a couple hundred years and look at how we set this up. This is the least we can do to help these people get back onto an even playing field. We made the playing field uneven. This is actually, it's just time to pay your dues. And, but I think that there's a real, I mean, when the government puts out an executive order that says no government employee or contractor can teach about racism while including unconscious bias or the structural nature of racism, we have a really big problem. Um, so- I, I yelled in my car. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I seriously okay. screamed in my car. I yeah. just dropped off my children. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. you don't bother teaching about it if you're not gonna talk about unconscious bias and the structural nature of it. But 
but that keeps the white people in power. So obviously that's the goal. So what, how do we continue to understand that? Because those things won't take hold and be effective unless more of the stakeholders really are willing to say, whew, we are at a deficit here. We as white people are at a deficit because there's a whole sector of the population who is struggling to succeed because of systems we've created. Well, and I think, you know, for me in, in this process, uh, there was a moment of, of just recognition um, that I've not really considered my whiteness because I live in the world where I've had the luxury of not having to for such a long time. So in that moment when that, it's kind of like, whoa, I've never really considered what it means to be white. Whereas I don't think that that's necessarily the case for people of color, you know, because of the way our world has been structured and the way that that has, you know, is thrown at them on a daily basis. So I think for me, that was kind of a, a, a real moment of awakening <laughs> in, my, in my process, you know, and certainly here in Canada, and I've mentioned this before on the podcast, um, Right now in Canada, a lot of what we're seeing in our media is with regard to Indigenous people here in Canada and colonization. And we keep hearing words like decolonize and reconciliation. But the process at which our political people are going about reconciliation is from a white colonial lens. So it's kind of like, how are we going to reconcile this? How are we going to create or push some difference if it's largely white men sitting in the room trying to come up with solutions for this quote unquote problem <laughs> without the inclusion and respectful inclusion and respectful engagement of the people who this is impacting the most. And actually listening to the people who it's impacting and hearing their thoughts and asking their opinions. Yeah. Preci precisely. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and Kathy, I would like to touch on something that you mentioned that um, you had never really thought about your whiteness, really. Um, whereas for me, my experience, especially in you know, formal education, Wake Forest, med school, there isn't a moment where I'm not thinking about my blackness. Um, in every space I enter, I, there are thoughts of, you know, I have to prove myself. You know, I have to show that this wasn't a mistake, that, <laughs> that I was a worthy investment. So in everything, and I know this may sound dramatic, but truly in every encounter, there is that voice in the back of my head because I'm always aware of my race. And that pulls us also into this place of, so I'm about to be 48 years old next month. Just I was a raised a youngster, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but I was raised during that colorblind time. Yeah, we don't see race. Right. Right. I mean, we don't we don't talk about it. I was raised kind of all over. My mother's yeah. from New York. My daddy's from Kansas. But I was raised in the South quite a bit, but also California and then the Southwest in Texas. 
but I got that we don't talk about this and we don't recognize it. So, you know, it's, we get the fight of the South too. Yeah. And so then we have that piece of how demoralizing that can be to not recognize somebody's experience. Yeah. And then this goes into kind of the final part of this paper that I really want to kind of hit home on, because this is one of the things as a scientist that makes me want to fling my glasses across the room. I'm so glad you're going to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> so before we can't talk about race and everything, unless we talk about structural racism, but also we have to talk about the fact of white people having the privilege of saying, when asked the race question, oh, but there is only one race, the human race. And you just read that so dramatically. And it's like, really, come on. I can't tell if my things are gonna have an effect if I tried to make policy changes, if you don't tell me and allow me to consider what that might mean. Yeah. I get it that you're trying to tell me that you are colorblind and everybody matters and all of this is important things, but you're making me mess, you're, you're messing up my science yeah. and you're making me crazy and yeah, you man. are disrespecting people. Yeah. I think that's the biggest piece is not understanding that by answering that question in that way, it is disrespectful. Yeah. It is rude and it takes away from their experience. Now that's just me getting a little bit hot and heavy under the, the science and Kimmy can tell me if I'm wrong or not. But, no, no, um, no, you're, you're absolutely <laughs> right. Um, it's almost as if acknowledging my blackness, it makes you so uncomfortable. Like why, why, <laughs> why are you colorblind? No. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. And like I said, it's when you are in a majority white space, it's hard not to think about your identity. You know, it's hard not to think about trying to defend your credentials. Mm -hmm. Um, so you're right. It is disrespectful because my identity is very much so it shapes my experience. Absolutely. Well, and I think this is the shortcut that we love to do when we when we want to feel woke is, you know, we say, oh, you know, we made race, so it doesn't count. No, no, we did make it. It's deeply imaginary and totally real. Absolutely. And I know that's hard to understand, <laughs> but we have made it so real that it now matters to demographics, to health research. Like you have to say, what would society call you? And that sucks and feels crappy. Like, but that's the question I'm asking you is what social and political forces have acted on your life? And when you're checking that box, that's what you're checking is like, by you're actually being more of an activist by checking the box than by writing your sort of subversive statement in the blank space. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of sets me off. And I've had that happen over a course of several studies that I've worked with massage therapists on and send out yeah, yeah. um well we're totally immune as massage therapists because we're super caring and compassionate yeah, yeah. you get it <laughs> well and i love that in the paper you guys um i can't let me see if i can find it real quick you said something about um and i love this because nobody gets to escape like the profession from researchers to educators practitioners and associations need to work to improve the landscape and that every single one of us, whatever our role is in the profession, even as consumers, we have a role to play in shifting this and um, really asking, cr thinking critically about what it is that we can do to change uh, the balance. 
Now I do have one question because, um, one question, like this is the only question I've asked. Are you ready? I have my one question. Um, but so the Bureau of Labor Statistics, I don't know that I trust them to collect useful data about our profession because we're such a weird profession and we practice in all kinds of pockets. But if their data is to be believed, it's roughly a 70-30 split, which is actually more than black representation in the main population. So how do you, talk? can you guys talk about that? No, 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 it's not 70-30. It's with looking at, um... Uh, black or African-American are only 8%. So oh, then you also have to look at um, Asian, American, and Hispanic, and Latinos. So yeah, 72.3% white. Yeah. And then 8.8% um, black or African-American, 13.1% Asian, and 11.1% Hispanic. If I'm looking at the chart, the yeah, I see you're looking at the graph. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but sure. here's the other piece in here. Yeah, please. Who's considered white? Well, yeah. So Arab Americans. You know, we don't ask this question well. Um, recently, we've, I know with Project COPE, we did go in and, and change it to try to make it even more, bring in more categories because I started working with, um, we brought on an Arab American woman who's on our team now as well. She's amazing. She's taking care of our social media. That's Hannah. Nice. Um, and then also I work with a, another individual on another project on my patient engagement work. And he's from Lebanon. He's mm -hmm. like, and he, we've had this discussion because I have no idea what they just tell me to check white. Like, cause I'm not white. I'm from Lebanon. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> right. Right. So who's lumped in yeah to white. you're too messy we don't know where to put you exactly yeah so that negates their experience as well and what does that do yeah so i think it's probably my mathematical ineptitude um and i'll look forward to you helping me um with that so there's a section where you say the u.s bureau of labor statistics provides some information about the state of massage therapy indicating that 83.6 of the profession are women and over 70 percent white so, so I guess it's the, it's that remaining 30% is like you're saying, not African-American. It's everybody who's not white. And that's a whole lot of people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I don't know how much I trust those statistics either. Right. Right. I mean, because yeah. you will see the gender breakdown anywhere from like low eighties here all the way up to almost 90%. Yeah. So we don't have a necessarily great measure of race ethnicity, because at least from the profession standpoint, the professional associations, I don't see them asking that question. Right. Um, yet, I keep. Yeah, there's been there's been some resistance to asking that question. No, not actually not. Um, oh, they they've done it in the past, mm -hmm. and I think it's just one of those things that every now and then I just have to remind my people. Yeah. Like, can we please ask this question? Yeah. Um, well, we have to move away from from it being a taboo question. Like I think Kemi was talking about in the very beginning, like to be afraid to ask the question really exposes your beliefs in a way, you know, this is, this is useful information that helps us operate within the profession and advance the profession. So it shouldn't be a, a question that we're going out on a limb by asking. Right. 
but that's no, and make the point that it is an issue or it is uh, something that needs to be looked at and and considered and and how do we change that because if we just gloss over it or just ignore it then again it's like myself for a number of years oh, i don't even have to consider my whiteness yeah <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> and you know the interesting piece here is that we haven't even delved into the intersection the intersectionality of it all right i mean Ooh, yeah we where we could talk about benny vaughn one yep. of the bigger names of as being a black man in massage therapies right yeah i mean you, you want to talk about a unicorn path. right right and being very successful i mean he is very successful yes yes and he yep. he is amazing yes but how many others how many yep. other black men in massage therapy can you name yeah well and his clients aren't black no, so, not, not many. <laughs> right, right. So, well, and that leads me, I wonder, um, and there's, I'm sure there's no data on this, but I think as we consider, you know, when Black people dip their toe into the world of massage as, as consumers, and they interact with a white therapist who's perhaps coming from a place of unconscious bias, where you think that, that this person experiences pain differently, that maybe they have musculature. I mean, all of the crazy assumptions that have been carried over the centuries that, then you get a not great massage because this mm-hmm. person didn't even know they were telling all these stories about your body and your lifestyle and all of this stuff. And then you go, no, nope, that's not for me. Hmm. Yep. You yeah. Know, so I, are we even talking about it? Well, I was gobsmacked yeah. by that. Cause I had never, I, over the course of my massage therapy career, I'd never heard that. And then I believe it was on the podcast with, um, who was who was the podcast with that it was brought up about in medical text that oh with Dr. J Pop Dr. J Pop where uh-huh. black people experience differently than than white people and yeah. I'm like I'm like what yeah that's in medical yeah. literature how come I, I, I I'm, I'm glad I I'm glad I thought but I'm like 2016 yeah right what I think they surveyed a group of medical students. I don't remember how long ago this was, but not, not too long, long ago. Long ago enough. Yeah. It was 2016. And it was residents too. Residents as well. And a significant number of them reported that Black people had thicker skin, less sensitivity to pain. And these are people who are in medicine. Right. How scary is that? How scary is that? Yeah. And now, and, and as residents, that means that technically they've sort of, they're past the place where they're going to learn that that's not a thing. Like they're now providing care to people. <laughs> the ship has sailed. Especially if we can't provide um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, continuing education in any way, shape, or form. Right. But then, you know, this summer, so you, I do see pockets of light. So let's pull back to pockets of light. <laughs> yes, let's do it. Uh, <laughs> I like pockets this whole, of light, this, please. This whole project is like the best part of the pandemic for me because I, I, I got I got me in my life. Yeah. Um, is this summer, this past summer, a book was published, um, a medical student in England realized that, you know, when you look at anything talking about rashes or anything on the skin, that, that book, yep. Oh, so good. Yes. <laughs> that was done by a medical student yeah. who said, I'm just going to have to go publish a book on this because everything, it does not look like that on my skin. Yeah. So we need to be looking at these things in different ways. Yeah. Well, so what's that doing sorry. in massage text? So how are our, what's it going on in our massage texts? 
Yeah. And in other pieces. So my one small little piece that I am working on at the journal, at least for the IJTMB <laughs> is when, so I don't create the photos that go with the articles. Okay. But I'll review them. Mm-hmm. And I now have the person who's creating them thinking about these things. Like, who are we putting in these pictures? Yeah. And so just start to look at that when the IJTM gig comes out. I mean, this yeah. is a piece that we are truly trying to consider Yeah. to change slowly yeah. some of these pieces. Yeah. Are we going to get it right every time? Absolutely not. Yeah. Are we going to mess up? Yep. Do I mess up? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's to humbly step back and have those conversations and then say, I acknowledge that. Yep. I'm going to do better. I'm going to acknowledge this and, and do what I can. And I am very sorry. That was never my intent, but I can recognize the impact on you or whoever the you is. Yeah. And how can we do better? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that, I mean, every episode, I feel like so at some point we come back to humility and the willingness to mess up no matter what topic we're talking about. And, and I think I'm, I was thinking about ABMP just recently did a CE summit and their keynote speaker was Dr. Nicola Finley. And she was talking about health disparities and, and racial inequity. And she talked about when her own daughter was born, she was jaundiced and they knew she was jaundiced because they did the bilirubin test at birth, but they couldn't see that she was jaundiced. And so two or three days later, they were ready to release her. And because she was a physician, she's like, you didn't draw her blood again. You didn't like, let's just check the levels. Cause she's like, I, you know, we have no reason to believe that this has resolved. And actually her numbers had gone up and she said, you know, they would have sent me home and she could have been deaf. She could have had defects. She could have had all kinds of like lifelong repercussions. And what I love is that she was so clear to say, these were good doctors. The people treating me are not bad people who were giving me bad care because I was black. They just didn't realize that you can't mm-hmm. see yellow on a black baby. Mm-hmm. And so they thought, well, your eyes aren't yellow, off you go. And I think that that is one of the biggest things that we just keep trying to reinforce is when you do what you just described and you say, gosh, that's I didn't mean to do that. You don't then crawl into the shame spiral and hole of death and say, I'm the worst person ever. You go, wow, gosh, I didn't know that was in there, you know? And, and maybe you call your friend ABK and you'd be like, you're not going to believe the stupid crap I just said. <laughs> um, but then hopefully you don't say it again, or you tell somebody else that you did say it and you go, oh, here's this thing I did totally by accident. And they go, oh my God, I would have done that. And then maybe that person doesn't do it, but we have to be willing to, to, yeah, when you stick your neck out there, you're going to do it wrong and yeah. be like, oh, that was messed up. Yeah, well, you have to be willing. Sees it, sees it as an opportunity to inform yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Go ahead, Kimmy. I was just going to say, you have to be willing to be a bit uncomfortable yeah. as you're acknowledging things that you were once ignorant about and then saying, hey, we can change it. So it's learning to be comfortable in that discomfort. Yes. We did not pay them to say that. I swear the two of them just, you played right into it. We're always talking about that. Isn't, isn't that a heel well t-shirt? <laughs> it, it, it really... Be comfortable in your discomfort. Yes. Are you uncomfortable? Good. <laughs> I work is good. Good. You're doing a good job. That's right. So, um, so we can't hold you guys hostage for hours. Um, I know, well, we can stay on and, you know, talk, oh, but uh, we'd like to, we would like to. 
what what didn't we talk about? Um, what do you, we, we're gonna tell everybody that they need to go read this paper. It's super readable. It's written in normal English that you can understand. It doesn't have a lot of crazy data that you're gonna have to analyze. It's really spelled out clearly. It's a, like a maybe eight minute read. You totally have time to read this paper. In fact, you don't have time to not read this paper. Um, but let's say that people don't read it. What should, what didn't we cover or what should they, what's the takeaway or takeaways? I think we covered just about the highlights really. Like I said, um, um, we have to think about who is being left out of the picture, left out of the discussion um, and try our best to reach out to people who aren't included. So reach out to communities that you don't often see. Um, find ways to educate people. Um, find ways to sponsor people. This is how we change. Um, this is how we increase representation. Yeah. She's a great student. Ah. <laughs> oh, I forgot one question I do have, and I think we can do it pretty quickly. But. Um, when we talk about access, um, I actually used your paper for my column in Massage and Body Work magazine, which will come out in a month or two, because I wanted to talk about access. And I think that when we talk about, what we're talking about is more trained hands on people. So we're not necessarily talking about more people able to walk into a massage studio. Um, we might be, but part of what, um, we are members of the um, Coalition to Transform Advanced Care. And we've been working and we're now working with MedStar, the same hospital who's doing the LVAD study to uh, participate in a three-year community-based palliative care program in DC. So we're gonna be working with primarily upwards of 85% of the patients in this program are gonna be African-American in the city. We're going to have massage therapists going into their homes, helping them to manage chronic and serious illness. So they're not gonna go to Massage Envy or to my office. We are actually gonna bring massage to them. And I feel like that is still success. Absolutely. The fact that you know, if we can get into the home of a person who has never had massage before, and then, cause it's, it's primarily a telehealth program. We're sort of like the telehealth plus piece of it. <laughs> um, but that people will be able to ask their telehealth nurse practitioner, hey, that massage therapist came last week I'm having that pain, I'm having that whatever again, could that person come out? And I think that we, we can really get a lot more creative about how we bring massage to people who haven't traditionally accessed it. And I think that's one of the ways and working with Medicare and Medicaid and making it certainly a, a more primary part of healthcare that is a reimbursable investment in your health. Is that, that, that sound crazy? No, 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 not, not at all. But first I have to revisit one thing real quick. I said, she's a great student. That does not mean that she learned all of that from me. Ah! She has a lot of that on her own. And I am not gonna claim all of that myself. Mm -mm. So I need to take a step back because I realized that sounded kind of like, oh, howdy ah! on my part. No, that's not all. No. <laughs> I think that bringing that access into whatever way it would be possible, I think that's fantastic. But here's one thing you might not have considered yet. What are you gonna do for your rural communities? Yeah. So we live in a rural, I'm down here in a rural state. That's where my practice was. When I was in practice, I was in little, tiny, tiny Lawrence County. Lawrence yeah. County is special. 
It's so special. It is a special place to be. Yeah. And don't even get me. This is okay. I know we're trying to get done with this thing. Ah! My office was a block and a half from the only KKK museum in the United States. Wow. Yes. That held rallies. Wow. Yes. In the 2000s. Wow. So there's a movie that's been made with Forrest Whitaker called Burden, which hasn't like been widely released, but that's all about this museum and the redneck shop in my little town, which was a block and a half from my massage practice. Wow. Okay. Rural, rural South Carolina, very poor, very low levels of education. Yeah. But I was very successful for a very long time before I went back to school. And while I think it's great to go out to people's homes, where will that not work? Yeah. And that is just that other piece we have to consider, especially when you look at the evidence of all the rural hospitals closing down in those states where Medicare was not expanded. Yeah. So you're already seeing this limitation. I'm not saying it's crazy. It's excellent. This is amazing. And it's, but it's one thing. I mean, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot. It is a it's lot. It's messy. But it's worth doing. It is. Yeah. And each person can make those steps, yeah. even if it's just answering the question on the survey the right way. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. a start. It is a start. Definitely. And just start, I think, just like Kimmy said, who's at the table? Yes. Who isn't? Yeah. Because representation matters. Yeah. It does. Absolutely. Oh, well, thank you both for, uh, for helping us uh, continue this conversation. It's funny that you mentioned the skinny white men when you look up leadership, because we're actually going to have some guests on really soon uh, to talk about healthism and weightism and, and just how that plays into it's yet another, it's sort of like the last acceptable racism that you can still judge people by their weight and, you know, all the things that go into that. I have another paper under review that's just on that. Ah! <laughs> enough, enough with the production. Just enough. <laughs> Take a nap, have a snack. I don't know, something. Oy. Well, thank you both for being with us. Um, I suspect we'll, we'll have you back at some point. I mean, that tends to happen around here. Um, Kathy, anything? Um, other than as always, I just feel so uh, grateful that I get to be part of this podcast where we get to sit down and have really meaningful conversations with super fancy, informed, and extraordinary guests who are out there doing great work. So thank you both. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Thank well, I'm you for having us. If you like this podcast, please uh, write us a review. It helps us a whole lot to actually write words in the review. Um, Send us an email. Send us some love on the social media. And uh, we always want to hear from you. You can email us at podcast at healwell.org. Enjoy the season. by Heal Well. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens.
New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at healwell.org. That's podcast at healwell.org. Thanks for listening.